Amen. If you have your Bibles, guys, if you would grab those and turn to John chapter 3, we're just opening the service by reading the scripture this morning. So today, we're in John chapter 3. It's on page 1262 of your house Bible. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know that this is part three of the story of Nicodemus. What do we know about Nicodemus to this point? We know that he is hyper-religious. We know that he is a Pharisee. We know that he is part of the Sanhedrin. He's part of the Supreme Court of Israel. This guy is a big deal. But he is totally clueless on how to be born again and how to become spiritually alive. So when we come to our text, that is the context. And today we're going to unpack verses 13 through 16, but I will begin reading in verse 3. I'm using the New American Standard Version, if you're curious. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus puzzled. He said, how can a man be born again when he is old? I've already been born again four times. He cannot enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you that you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you have heard the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going, so everyone who is born of the Spirit, verse 9. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus said, Nicodemus, are you not the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and yet you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And this is where our passage is today. It is the gospel, it is the truth, and it is awesome. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, notice the tense there, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, as Moses Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. I want you to pretend with me about something real quick. Pretend with me that inside of this box is a life-changing, eternity-altering truth. But I know what's inside, and you do not. What is required for you to understand what is inside of this box, this life-altering, life-changing truth inside this box? What is required for you to know what is inside? It requires for me to take it to you and to show you the truth that is inside. Who is a non-believer in your life? Who is somebody in your life, whether you work with them, whether in your family, whether they're your child or your parent, who is somebody in your life that needs to know the life-altering, eternity-changing truth of the gospel? Because how will they hear unless we go? As I was unpacking this uh, passage this week, it was just overwhelming. 
I anticipated to go from verses 13 through 21, but I ended up just going to verse 16 at just the depth and the riches and the gushing truths that we find just in verses 13 through 16. Yet also, as I was unpacking this text, I realized the simple thought that truth matters. That as Christians, communicating the truth to the world matters. But I was also gripped with the truth that we live in a time of a great paradox. That in our culture, people are probably more illiterate when it comes to understanding the truth of the gospel. That people are more illiterate when it comes to understanding the good news that God loved the world, so he sent his son. And then a response to that truth, what should we do? We should believe. That people in our world are more illiterate, but the paradox is, is that they live in a time where the truth of the gospel can be accessed more now than ever. I find that amazing that people are totally clueless in our culture what the gospel even is, but they have videos on YouTube that explain the gospel now more than ever. Why is that? Why does the paradox exist? I'm not sure why the paradox exists. I'm not sure, I'm not here to bash on our culture or the church's culture in America. But I am here to say that there's only one way to fix people's illiteracy of the gospel. There's only one way to fix a non-believer's understanding of the truth. The way we fix it is not by posting more videos on YouTube, okay? <laughs> Can I get an amen to that one? There's tons of them out there, okay? Uh, on the gospel, on the truth of John 3.16, there's just a, a laundry list of videos. How do we fix the problem of the biblical illiteracy in our culture in America, yet also the access to information? We shouldn't post more videos on YouTube, but what should we do? We should tra- take the life-changing truth of the gospel, sorry, wherever we go. That no matter where we travel, whether it's to grocery stores or to our work or to our family, to a Thanksgiving meal, that wherever we go, not only should we communicate the truth of the gospel, but we should also example it in our lives. The best way of explaining the gospel of Christ is by taking our lives and our words with us. In a gospel illiterate world, someone must go. Someone must go, someone must travel, someone must go to the ends of the earth to make disciples, someone must go to the end of our road, someone must go into the cubicle next to us, somebody must go and talk to a family member to explain the gospel. And that someone is you. That someone is me. That someone is you, that you must go and proclaim the life-changing, eternally altering truth of the gospel to a dark and decaying world. How will they hear if we do not go? So then the question is, is how do we go? How do we communicate the gospel? How do we explain the good news of Jesus Christ that God loved the world so much that he sent his son? How do we explain that to a world that is illiterate, that has very little idea of what it means to be saved and to follow Jesus Christ? The process of communicating the gospel is what I see in our passage today. 
Then in John chapter 3, verses 13 through 16, Jesus unpacks the truth of the gospel to somebody that is absolutely clueless on how to be born again. And Jesus does this in two ways. He does it through illustration and he does it through explanation. So with this framework in mind, if you would turn again in your Bible to John chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. But as I've mentioned already, that today is really part three, excuse me. Today is part three of the story of Nicodemus. So let us very quickly revisit where we are in this story. If you've been here for any length of time, then you know that Jesus spends, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, he spends those 12 verses convincing Nicodemus what? He is convincing Nicodemus that he is spiritually dead, that he is in desperate need of to be born again truly. And what is Nicodemus? That he thinks that all of his efforts have caused him to be born again, but Nicodemus is not. In Nicodemus' mind, according to his culture, according to his religion, according to all the things that he has been taught, he thinks in his mind that he has been truly changed. Can I just say it this way? Nicodemus is probably one of the most difficult men in the entire universe to convert to the truth. Because in his mind, he has checked all of the boxes on what it means to be right with God. Box number one, that Nicodemus is what? He is a child of Abraham. His religion taught him that because he has a father named Abraham, because he has a sign of circumcision, that he's part of the covenant of Israel, that he is saved. But what does Jesus say in verse 3? Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought because he is a child of Abraham that he would be inherit the kingdom of God. But then Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is Nicodemus thinking here? He says it in verse 4, but really, as we talked about it, Nicodemus is saying to himself, I have that too, that I have been born again. So box number one, that he is a child of Abraham. And number two, is that he has been, in his mind, spiritually born again. But Nicodemus' religion has told him that he is born again by what? By fleshly deeds, by experiences, by his bar mitzvahs, by being married, by being a teacher of Israel, by leading a rabbinic school. His culture has told him that he has been born again four times. But what's the problem? What's the problem here? Notice verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, I say, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is Nicodemus' problem? That he has not been spiritually born again. He has not been transformed. He thinks that he is born again, that he is transformed, that he is right with God by means of external deeds, but nothing could be further from the truth. So, to quickly outline this chapter, in my opinion, verses 1 through 12, Jesus uses those verses to erase Nicodemus' deception. His deception that religion and his mind caused him to be saved. Verses 13 through 16, Jesus explains the gospel. And then verses 17 through 21, Jesus gives the expectant results of the gospel. And if you have your notes, notice there with me, how does Jesus communicate the gospel? He does it through illustration and explanation. But notice with me in verses 13 through 15, if you have your scripture with you in front of you, as I read these three verses, which is our passage today, I want you to see if you can find the two 
two illustrations that Jesus uses to explain the gospel, the good news. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Believe it or not, Jesus uses two illustrations in these three verses to illustrate the identity of Jesus. But what's the problem? I've, I would imagine all, most of you are probably like me earlier in the week, that you probably only see one illustration, right? We all see verse 14 where it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right? That's, we think initially that this is the only illustration that Jesus uses in these two verses to demonstrate the gospel. But if that is the case, then we are missing the best part of the entire text. There's an illustration that Jesus uses, this illustration and it is truth, that Jesus uses to demonstrate the gospel and is found in verse 13. What does it say? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended. Notice that tense right there, right? It's past tense. We'll talk about more here in just a minute. But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. If you have a pen, I would encourage you to circle that phrase, the Son of Man. How does Jesus illustrate the gospel? His illustration number one is the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? We, we know it to be Jesus, right? So if you've read the gospels, if you're familiar with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you know that it has been ascribed to Jesus that Jesus is the Son of Man. But put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. He has no idea that this man that is sitting before him is that son of man. That There is a correlation here. So when, Nicod- when Jesus says to Nicodemus that no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man, Nicodemus doesn't know who the son of man is, but Nicodemus is very familiar with the text of the son of man. He's under- he understands the significance and the origin of this phrase. Now, if you know my mode of operation around here, sometimes I give you a little bit of TMI. Uh, that means too much information. And some of you probably enjoy it. And some of you are probably people who are like, okay, it's cool. Um, but the origin of this phrase, son of man, actually comes out of Daniel chapter 7. So if you have your Bible, you could turn there. But the first time the phrase son of man is used to signify deity is found in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. And in these verses, Nicodemus would understand the significance of the phrase son of man. Notice it says, I lifted up, I kept looking into the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man, Daniel seven thirteen. one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And notice what the Son of Man is given. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Wait, the kingdom of God, that all peoples, nations, and men of every tribe might serve him, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So when 
Jesus says in verse 13 that no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. When Jesus says the phrase Son of Man, Nicodemus has a good understanding of what that means. That number one, that the Son of Man is coming in the future. Number two, that the Son of Man is coming from God. And that number three, the Son of Man will be given sovereign dominion over the kingdom of God. What does Nicodemus want more than all else? He wants to inherit the kingdom of God in verse 3. So Nicodemus is looking for this man named the Son of Man that will be the gatekeeper to the kingdom of God. What's the irony here? Right? That Nicodemus has been looking for this guy named the Son of Man that will hold the keys to the kingdom of God. And what? The irony is, is that Nicodemus has no idea that this guy named Jesus is he. (laughs) I find that very ironic. That Nicodemus is looking for this man, the son of man, to let him go into the kingdom of God. And this man named Jesus is he. Now, for just a second, I want you to put on the shoes of Nicodemus. That Nicodemus has been looking for this man named the son of man. He knows he's coming. He knows that we have sovereign dominion over the kingdom of God. I want you to put on the shoes of Nicodemus, and I want you to reread with me verse 13. Okay? It says this. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Wait, what? What did Jesus just say? But he who descended from heaven. This past tense. So wait a second, Nicodemus has been looking for this guy named the Son of Man, and Jesus just said to Nicodemus that the Son of Man has already descended from heaven. Now, if I'm Nicodemus in the first century A.D., I probably would have to pick me up off of the floor, because what is Jesus saying? That the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 is being fulfilled. That the Son of Man, the sovereign ruler over the kingdom of God, has descended. And who is this man? He is Jesus. He is the man that Nicodemus is talking to in the middle of the night. Now, I could not imagine being Nicodemus. Because the one he has been looking for, the one that he has known about, the one that he has taught about in his rabbinic school, the Son of Man who will rule over the kingdom of God, has come. But let's take a step back for just a second on a bird's eye perspective. If you notice here in the text, Jesus doesn't say that I am the Son of Man. He just says that it has happened. Now on an exegetical level, what is Jesus doing with this phrase, Son of Man? I think Jesus illustrates his, the gospel, his Identity and purpose through the Son of Man, and he illustrates, I'll say it this way, the Son of Man, in my opinion, illustrates the identity of Jesus. That Jesus is not just a man that sits before him, but that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the holder to the keys of the kingdom of God, and that he will reign over dominion over his throne forever. How does Jesus communicate the gospel illustration? Number one is the Son of Man, which illustrates, in my opinion, the identity of Jesus, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the man that Nicodemus has been looking for. But then notice in verse 14, how else does Jesus illustrate the gospel? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up 
so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. How does Jesus illustrate the gospel through the Son of Man, which illustrates his identity? And illustration number two is the serpent. The serpent in the wilderness, which illustrates, in my opinion, the purpose for Jesus. Now, I would imagine some of us have probably read John chapter 3 before. And I would imagine some of us are still a little confused on what the serpent in the wilderness is. And some of us are tracking right along with me. There's probably a mixed uh, bag here this morning. So if you're scratching your head at what the, the serpent and Moses in the wilderness is, then it comes, it's a story that comes out of Numbers chapter 21. So what Jesus does is he's sitting there with Nicodemus, who is a teacher of the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament scholar who would know the story of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, who would know the story of the serpent. And Jesus takes these two Old Testament illustrations to demonstrate who he is and what is his purpose. Okay, you tracking with me? All right. So Jesus takes Numbers 21, a story out of there, to demonstrate his own purpose. And if to quickly set the stage, I'm going to read the text in Numbers 21. But if you're unfamiliar with the story... Uh, the story on Numbers 21 comes when Israel is in the desert for 40 years. Okay, Israel is in the desert for 40 years. Why? Because they were disobedient to God. They complained and were fearful. To kind of paint the picture, if you know, so Jacob had 12 sons, right? And then Joseph was a prince, a ruler in Egypt. Then Jacob's 12 son, other 11 sons migrated to Egypt, were in captivity to the Egyptians, and then Moses comes along on the scene after 400 years of captivity, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he says what? Let my people go. Right? That's what we always think he says, at least. Okay, okay. so let my people go, and then Pharaoh says, no thank you, right? And then what happens? God sends the ten plagues of Egypt, then the nation of Israel is leaves, they cross the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army is destroyed, and then the nation of Israel is caught in the desert for 40 years before they enter the promised land. Okay, so that's where we are when we come to Numbers 21. It says this in Numbers 21, verse 4. Then the Israelites set out from Mount Or by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient. We don't do that, do we? I'm just kidding. And the people became impatient because of the journey, because it's 40 years in the desert without air conditioning. Brutal. Okay. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? <laughs> For there is, I love this, For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Wait a second, what? There's no food, but there is food. I find that interesting. We don't want to eat that. Verse 6 in Numbers 20, the Lord sent fiery serpents for their disobedience and grumbling. He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of them died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Notice that We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, Yahweh, and you. Intercede with the Lord, and that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people... Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, a bronze serpent, and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, that he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, then he lived. That is the illustration that Jesus is using in John chapter 3. But allow me to put John chapter 3, verse 14, in a nutshell. 
Whereas the Son of Man illustrates the identity of Jesus, that he is the gatekeeper, that he is the sovereign ruler over the kingdom of God, the serpent in the wilderness demonstrates or illustrates Jesus' purpose. That in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent, so will Jesus be lifted up. That in the same way that those who look at the bronze serpent in Numbers 21 acknowledged their wrongdoing and sin, so those that come to Christ must do the same. And in the same way that those looked at the serpent in the desert to be saved, so those who would look and believe on Jesus shall be saved from their sin. But why? Why does Jesus take two different illustrations from the Old Testament to demonstrate and to illustrate the gospel that he is about to present to him. I've already mentioned it, but it's because Nicodemus understood those stories. Not only are they truth and that Jesus is those things, that he is the serpent, that he is the son of man, but he also uses those illustrations to allow Nicodemus the permission or the ability to allow the gospel to make sense. Think about this. I just want you to think about other instances where Jesus gives the gospel. The Samaritan woman at the well, what does Jesus use in order to illustrate the gospel? What does he use? He uses something called water, H2O. Jesus is taking these two stories to allow Nicodemus the ability to make, to wrap his head around the gospel, I'll say it that way. I've already asked you this question, but now I'm going to ask you to take it a step further. Who is a non-believer in your life? Who is somebody that doesn't know the truth of the gospel inside of this box? The step I want you to take further is I want you to picture their face in your mind right now. My question is this, is how can you be like Jesus in John 3? How can you illustrate the gospel to where they can then understand it? There are many ways we can do this in our culture, right? We have probably heard of the wordless book, right? The Romans Road, Four Spiritual Laws. These are all illustrations of the gospel. What is a way that you can take this truth that's inside of this box that you're not meant to keep to yourself, but that you're meant to share and you're meant to give away that changes not only their life here, but their life there? How can you take the gospel and make it make sense to somebody? Maybe you take something as mundane as a box to help it make sense. Maybe you take something like water or an Old Testament story if they've been raised in church their whole life. What can you do to help the, make the gospel sensible and make sense to their mind? So in my opinion, Jesus in John 3, 1 through 12, uses that time to convince Nicodemus that he's not spiritually born again, although he thinks he is. Then Jesus illustrates the gospel through the Son of Man and the serpent in the wilderness. And then Jesus unfolds for us the gospel in one famous and one very short verse. The gospel, that is a Greek word euanglion. That means good news. It was, it was used as a messenger who had good news from a foreign battlefield. Or good news from a messenger about from a king. Or from an authority. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Let us not overcomplicate things. The, gospel, the good news is really two main ingredients. If 
you notice with me in John chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, For God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Pause. I do not have this in my notes. I'm going off script. I'm nervous about John 3.16. Because when we read that verse, what is our first initial reaction? You probably don't even listen to the verse anymore. You just know it. Right? Amen? We have heard it so much in our culture, so much in church, that sometimes we don't even see the beauty of the truth that it contains. So listen to it again with open ears this time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What is the gospel? Two things. Number one, it is God's action. If you have your notes, it is God's action. Notice the first thing that God did. For God so loved the world. God's first action in the gospel is his love. <laughs> this gets old in churches today, but it should never get old. Can I amen to that one? That God chose to love the world. Can I just say that God chose to love the world despite our sin, despite our mistakes, despite the darkness that we live in, despite the fact that He created us in perfection. Yet we decided in the Garden of Eden to say, thanks but no thanks, I got it. I want to be like you. I find it amazing that God chose to love us. I hope that never gets old to you. So God is, God's first action is love, but then action number two is that He gave. For God so loved the world that He gave. In the original language, if you know me, I, I'm a little bit of a Greek nerd. I probably profess that many times, and I you, translate the Greek to English every time I preach. And I found a word uh, in English lacking. Because it says this, it says, For God so loved the world. And that word that is really the word therefore. So in other words, it said, Because God chose to love us, therefore he gave. He didn't give begrudgingly. He didn't give half-heartedly. He gave in aorist tense. It is done and over with. And who does he give? He gave us... His only born son to what? To die for people that were enemies of God. But God revealed his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God chose to love us even though we rejected him. Parents in the room. If you're not a parent, think about somebody that you love more than all else. Would you kill that person to save your enemy? Would you kill that person even for anyone else in the world? As a parent, that thought is egregious. 
that I would take my child, my most precious possession, to sacrifice it for anyone else is just asinine. But that demonstrates God's love, that he sent his most precious son, his only begotten son, to die on a tree, on an object of humiliation, so that he... His death could pay for my sin. And that what, what's amazing about this, you know, if I was a, okay, if I killed my child for anybody else, what would I do? First off, I'd be super bitter, super sad, and super grievous. Okay, I don't even know that's a word, okay? I'll sure I'm, I'll hear about it later, okay? Not only would I be that, but then I would say, okay, well, you owe me something. Right? If you killed your child for somebody else, what would you say to that person? Oh, by the way, you owe me something. You owe me money or you owe me a favor. That's the crazy thing about the gospel. It's not crazy. It's awesome. That not only did God love us and not only did he send his son and his son die, but then God gave him to us as a gift, something that we do not earn and we cannot earn. Amen? That thought, I'm not even sure I understand that. Because in my fallen human nature, that level of love and sacrifice is so unfathomable. What manner of love is John 3.16? That a perfect God would look at the filth of sin through the lens of love to send his most prized possession to redeem it. I'll say that again. What manner of love is this? That a perfect God would look at the filth of sin through the lens of love to send his most prized possession to redeem it. How does Jesus communicate the gospel? Through illustration. And he includes ingredient number one, which is God's action that God loved and God gave. But then notice the second half of John 3.16. What do we do in response to God's love? That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Our reaction, our response the love of God is ingredient number two. Man's response is belief. But allow me to get a little bit of TMI on you as well. As I said earlier, I, trans- I was translating John 3.16, and I noticed that there was a word missing in a lot of English translations, and they, and they share it, but in a weird kind of way. And I'm just going to kind of rephrase it real quick. This is John 3.16 in the Byron uh, translation, which is not, it doesn't exist. Okay. It says this, For God loved the world, therefore he gave his only born son, in order that all, in order that all, the ones who believe in him will not be destroyed, but have eternal life. Now, I could be making something up here, but I don't think I am. Who is the gospel for? It's not, can I, it's not just for the elect, but God, Jesus died for all. All who, the ones that believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Christ died for all. I think we have this misconception in churches today. Can I just pick, pick on me real quick with this? That there's a certain select group that are deserving of the gospel. But that's not true. 
that no matter how sinful and how egregious somebody's life is, that Christ still died for them. The terrorist of society, Christ died for. Politicians, sorry to go there, okay. Politicians, Christ died for. The hyper-religious that think they can earn their way to heaven, Christ died for. The scum of society, like the Samaritan woman at the well, Christ died for. The good person, Christ died for. The housewives and house moms, Christ died for. The engineers in Huntsville, Christ died for. Christ died for the homeless, for the mentally ill, for the rich, for the poor, for all sinners and all saints, Christ died for. Christ died for preachers, for your children, for your parents. Christ died for you. That no one is excluded from the gospel. Because God loved all, He sent His Son to die for all, that all who believe in Him shall be granted not death, not eternal death and spiritual death, but eternal life in the kingdom of God. And not only that, but what have we seen in John chapter 3? Not only when we believe in Jesus Christ will we inherit eternity in paradise in the kingdom of God, but what else do we know? That our spirit has been born again, that we are transformed, that we are new. What manner of love is this? And what is our response? For more of my application section of today, what is our response? Well, first off, it's in John 3.16 that we must believe. But I want you to think about something that when we believe, what are we acknowledging? At the same time, I want you to think about this story that Jesus uses in John 3.14. When the people looked at the fiery bronze serpent in the wilderness, what at the same time were they acknowledging? They were acknowledging what? Their sin, their mistake, that they had rebelled against God. That when somebody believes in Jesus, now where you put that on the side of equation of salvation is the discussion, but I won't talk about it here. But in the very least, that when you believe, what is also happens? That you recognize the sin in your life and that you repent. Right? That's what I see in the serpent in the wilderness, that in order to be saved, they had to look at the serpent, and at the same time, they realized their own sin and their own mistakes, that they rebelled against God. But not only that, there's one more thing that happens. Fifteen years ago, I did a study in the life of Christ, and I studied every time Jesus shared the gospel in the four gospels. I looked at this one, I looked at the Samaritan woman at the well, I looked at the criminal cross, I looked at Matthew, I looked at Peter and Andrew, Simon and Andrew should be. And then you, you look at all these stories, and how do we know that they believed in Jesus? How do they know that they were born again? They followed they went, they go. Think about the Samaritan woman dwell, which we will talk about here in a couple of weeks. What did she do? She went and told her whole town to come and hear this guy that gives life. What did Nicodemus do? Because it ends at verse 21. What it, but this is not the only time in the Bible that Nicodemus is actually mentioned. 
In John chapter 7, what happens? That Nicodemus defends Jesus before the entire Sanhedrin. And then he participates in the burial of Jesus. Think about Matthew. What did he do? He left his tax collector booth. He left his career behind to follow a man that he just believed in. My point today is this. God's love compels me to believe, to repent, and to go. Let me say that again. God's love compels me, compels you, to believe, to repent, and to go. My goal today is threefold. If you want to know how I preach a sermon, it's these three things. I want to go deep into the text. I want to try to make it as clear as possible. And then I try to make it practical to life. That's what I try to do. We have spent 35 minutes unpacking the text together. I've attempted to make it clear. But then now is the time where we do this. Book tape. We take it to the ends of the earth. So how do we go? How do we go to the ends of the earth? I'm going to just break it down in four main steps. These are not have to do it in a certain way. It's just some things that I recommend from my time in sharing the gospel, but also what I see in the scripture. In order to go and share Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, that God loved us and he sent his son, that whoever believed in him shall be saved, not perish, but have eternal life. Well, number one, step one, we must identify a non-believer. That's why I've already asked you, is who is a non-believer in your life? Who is somebody that has not been born again? Maybe they know the truth. Like Nicodemus, they have been taught their whole life that being a good person, that knowing information is what saves you or experience is what saves you, but that is not what saves you. It is faith. Who is somebody in your life that is not a believer in Jesus Christ that has never been born again, that is not spiritually renewed? Who is that person? Step number two is communication. Telling them. So my next question is this, how can you tell them? You know, we live in a great paradox, but we also live in a wonderful time. Because we can call relatives that live across the country to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the method of communication is my question there. Step number three is illustration. Think about that person. Picture them in your mind. How can you tell them about Jesus? What is the method? But then also, what is the illustration that you could use to allow them allow it to make sense? Like Jesus, he takes these Old Testament stories, the Son of Man, the Serpent in the Wilderness, and he drags them over so that Nicodemus would be able to understand the life-giving message of the gospel. And then step number four is explanation. It's just sharing the good news. I think sometimes, if I, if I can just be a little bit transparent, we mix the bad news in with the good news. Can I say it that way? That we think the gospel is that we are sinners. Wait, what? We think the gospel is that we are sinners. That's not the gospel. That's not the good news. That's the bad news. Now, we need to convince people that they need Jesus, right? That's what Jesus does in John 3, 1 through 12. But that's the bad news. The good news is two things. God did something, and we respond to it, right? That's it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news. Let's not mix that. Let's not confuse that. So what is the gospel? I'm kind of asking, but you don't have to respond. 
It's God did, and we believe. Perhaps this is probably the most uh, uh, gospel-oriented sermon I probably have ever preached. I don't know how you can't unpack the gospel without, if you talk through John 3, 3, 13 through 16. Uh, the gospel has dripped from probably every sentence I have shared in one capacity or another. But very quickly, I'm just going to ask you, um, I think some of you are Nicodemus here today, that you know the truth, that you've been raised in the truth, that your parents told you the truth, that your parents may have told you even when you were a kid that you were born again, just like Nicodemus' religion did to him. But... In reality, there may have never been a change, and there may have never been a process of being renewed and spiritually transformed. I think some people looking online are probably clueless to this whole gospel thing. My encouragement is that you would believe. That is our response, and also we repent, we acknowledge our sin before God, and then we take that gospel to the ends of the earth. Friends, can I just say it this way? If you... If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, then believe. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, don't do this. People are literally dying for what's inside of this box. People are literally dying for the truth of the gospel. Who will tell them? Who will share the gospel to your family, to your friends, to that person that you pictured earlier? Friends, we have the truth that the world is starving for and dying without. Will we go? We have the truth that the world is starving for and dying without, quite literally. Will we go? Taking the gospel with us with our lives, and with our words. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, John 3.16, this whole passage is just awesome. It's awesome. It just has so much richness and truth and life-giving uh, messages. Lord, I, I, you know, I, I pray for us there this morning that we would... Um, that if we have not believed and been born again, been renewed, that we would believe and that we would repent and that we would go. But also, Lord, that if we are a Christian, if we have been spiritually born again, Lord, let us not hide our faith under a bushel, but let us put it on a lampstand for the world to see. Lord, I pray that we would go boldly, that we would present the gospel both with our word and with our lives and with our actions and with our kindness and with our love. And Lord, I pray that we would be conscious to understand how we can illustrate the gospel to a non-believer, just like you did in John chapter 3. And Lord, that when you give us the opportunity to present the truth, that we would not fold, that we would not be nervous and scared, that we would not put our faith under a bushel, but that we would put it out and we would communicate the gospel that you loved us and you sent his son, your son to die. And our response to that is faith. Lord, I just thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I am uh, honored to even be a part of this church. I love this church. I love my people. 
Uh, I've known many of them for 25, 30 years. Uh, I'm honored to be the pastor here. Lord, I just thank you for my family that's in this room, that are online, that cannot be here physically. I pray that you would protect us as we go, that we would be lights of the dark world, that you would give us courage, that you would give us strength, that you would give us the understanding of what you would have us to do, and that we would walk by the Spirit. That we would not just walk according to our minds, but we would walk according to the Spirit and to the things that you would have us to do in our daily lives. Let us go and be bold with your word. And I thank you for this morning, and it is an honor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.